0: I'm only covering one verse today, but that seems not fair. So we're going to go ahead and read, starting in verse 7 up to 17. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're reading the psalm this morning here. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, Georgia and I consider it to be an important calling in our life as parents to introduce our kids to classic cinema. And uh, I was very proud at a recent youth group event that my older girls were at. That on the bonus question, the answer was North by Northwest, and they knew it. And they were the only kids in the entire youth group that knew it without cheating and asking a parent. You know, I was like, "Yeah, that's right." Very proud father. Um, Last weekend, we we finally made the older three uh, watch Forrest Gump, a good all-time classic, and I hadn't seen it in years. I don't watch it very often because it makes me emotional and. Um, and there are many scenes that sort of tug your heartstrings throughout that film. Uh, but one of the storylines that's most captivating, that's very memorable, is the story of Lieutenant Dan. Um, uh, not to spoil anything, but he nearly dies on the battlefield in Vietnam, uh, but he gets rescued by Forrest Gump, one of his, you know, underlings in the unit there. For those of you who have seen it, is Lieutenant Dan happy to be rescued no, not particularly. Uh, he's angry the entire time. He's literally punching Forrest as Forrest is carrying him. and He's telling me, put me down. And he just wants to die on the battlefield with his men, which apparently all of his forefathers had done. And uh, later in the hospital one night, he literally pulls Forrest out of bed, drags him onto the floor and berates him and says, he gives this little you know, soliloquy. He talks about how we all have a destiny and I, I should have died out there with my men. And you cheated me. I was supposed to die in the field with honor, and you cheated me out of it. Is what he says. And it's the whole storyline's kind of funny. It's it's funny at times. It's sad. It's touching all at the same time. And eventually, it becomes very redemptive. But it reminded me of Jonah at this point in our story. Uh, I made the argument last week that, strictly speaking, Jonah is not actually suicidal. It's not technically a suicide. He's also not being murdered by these men that throw him over. He's really just facing the consequences of his sin. But I think that he's also kind of embraced the fate of death. He has a destiny. He's going to die so that these men on the boat can live. It's a last heroic, redemptive act that's going to give a redemptive twist to his foolish life. He's casting himself on God's mercy, and I think he's ready to face the music in that respect. And he's making this glorious sacrifice. Essentially, he's made his deathbed confession, kind of like the thief on the cross. He's finally got it right at the last minute, and all the troubles will soon be over. He can finally die with honor. And God is about to cheat him out of it. Like Forrest gum-snagging Lieutenant Dan off of the fields in Vietnam, God just won't let Jonah die with honor. And I think that Jonah may very well not welcome his salvation. Because frankly, it doesn't look much like salvation. We we have finally arrived at the one part of Jonah's story that everyone knows, right? The part that most of you remember from Sunday school, right? Even unbelievers know this much about Jonah, right? And what's funny is that all of what people actually know about it comes down to this single verse, verse 17. That's all people can remember. That's it. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's like there's nothing else to the story, right? And it's by far the weirdest and most memorable thing. That's why we think about it, right? Uh, we last saw Jonah, we see him getting thrown into the sea, and by all rights, God could have just let him sink right there. He certainly didn't deserve any better than that. But God sends a whale. The Bible says great fish. There's no Hebrew word for whale. We don't really know. It's not the kind of distinction they made in ancient Israel. I don't think there were a lot of marine biologists in Joppa at this time. You know, <laughs> We have no clue what this thing was, Really? Some have suggested it may have been created just for this occasion. That's something John Calvin argues. Uh, He says that the word rendered here is appointed, could also be rendered prepared and maybe even created. That's probably a little bit of a stretch. Um, But you you could interpret it as saying that God had created a species of sea monster for the express purpose of salvaging Jonah. Uh, But if we want to take the most obvious natural approach to it, uh, a whale would make some sense. It's the only thing big enough to swallow a man whole. In that way. And since they are mammals, it's the only creature that could conceivably be surfacing with enough frequency to provide any oxygen for Jonah. Uh, It doesn't really matter ultimately what it was. Uh, The point is that a sea monster just came and snatched the drowning Jonah out of the sea. And to my mind, it would not have been obvious to Jonah that this represented salvation to be saved by, from drowning, to instead be eaten. Um, thanks. It reminded me of a, another movie, classic, uh, Return of the Jedi. You may remember that early in that movie, Jabba the Hutt has condemned Luke and Han Solo to death, and he's going to feed them to the all-powerful Sarlacc, which is a monstrous creature in the sand pit of Karkun. And... C-3PO says, translating for Jabba, he pronounces their doom. He says that you'll be cast into the Sarlacc, and in his belly you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. And then Han sums up that fate nicely as they're approaching the pit. Luke says to him, you know, I used to live here, you know, and he says, you're going to die here, you know. Convenient. And I'm thinking that similar thoughts may have occurred to Jonah at this point. There is no reason for him to assume that this monstrous fish is anything other than a further judgment, a means for God to punish him for his rebellion for a little longer. Maybe God said, you know, drowning's too good for me, for, for Jonah. You know, I'm going to appoint a fish to go swallow him. We'll give him just enough oxygen so he can suffer longer. We'll let him be digested, maybe not for a thousand years, that's just silly, but maybe over at least a few days. And make no mistake, this would not have been a pleasant experience. If you grew up with a children's Bible with with pictures, you know, or children's you know, this, you know Bible storybooks, that kind of thing, they have a way of making this whole thing look cute. I mean, they do the same thing with Noah, right? Um, I remember we had the Archbooks version when I was a kid. I don't even remember they rhyme. They're they're cute. They're they're nice. Um, And there's Jonah, I remember the picture very clearly, I remember what he looked like, there's Jonah, and he's kneeling all pious-like in the whale, in this little perfectly circular belly, and he, you know, looks great. Um, The more likely scenario, I'm thinking, is that he spent at least the first several hours just screaming. Because that's what I would do. I don't know about you. But think about it this way. You just fell into the sea. You can't swim. So you're choking on seawater. You're dying. Then to add insult to injury, you get swallowed by something. You're still struggling for air. You finally start coughing. You choke it out, and you realize, okay, and you kind of catch your breath, and then you would start to smell things. When we say that something smells fishy... Do we usually mean that in a positive way? No, in fact, for those of us who eat fish, I enjoy fish, but the fish that are prized are generally the fish that we say taste less fishy. We call fishy fish one that is not really good eating. Only fish could possibly be inedible because they became more like themselves. I've gone deep-sea fishing one time in my life, uh, and I learned that bluefish, which are a lot of fun to catch because they put up a really good fight, uh, they have an oily, fishy taste, and that's why you don't see it sold in most markets, right? And so we caught a bunch of those while we were out there, and we kept a few just because they were in abundance, but mostly we cut them up for bait. And the boat owner told us, you know, how you have to put a lot of extra work into the bluefish if you're going to eat it. you got to, like, soak it in lemon juice or something. And why do you do that? You do that to reduce the fishiness. Well, all fish tend to get fishier with time. You know? And I'm assuming that this animal, This whale, whatever it was, this is not just a supernatural thing. I disagree with Calvin on this point, because I don't think that's generally how God works. I think he likes to make real things. The story is supernatural. What happens is supernatural, but I think that the animal is real. I believe it's a real sea creature, which means it had real appetites. And because fish tend to eat fish, they don't really have a lot of options in the ocean, do they? So whether it was krill, fish, or anything else, whatever is in the belly of this great fish would essentially be a fish-like mush, right? All of it in various states of decay and digestion. It would be disgusting, It would be a slimy mess. The smells would be unimaginable, especially for a landlubber like Jonah from the wine country of Galilee. It's just not the kind of thing he's accustomed to. Now, I know that Scandinavians are actually known for eating rotting fish. That's a true story. I'm a quarter Swedish. That's not something to be proud of when it comes to food. Swedish meatballs are okay, but Italian ones are better. Let's uh, you know, be honest. Most Scandinavian food is just dull. They eat like, unsalted cracker bread and jellies made out of like flavorless berries that grow in the wild. I don't know. I don't understand it. But it's the seafood that really gets to you. Uh, my mom likes pickled herring. That's gross enough. Um, but it pales in comparison to some other uh, delicacies in the north up there. Uh, The Swedes are known for eating something called surströmming, and uh, you can order it online. It's rather expensive. It comes in a little tin, and um, it's canned fish that is brined, but it's brined with a minimal amount of salt because too much salt would actually preserve it and make it edible, and so instead it comes out slimy and a little bit rotten, and opening a can of this thing is reputed to be one of the foulest smells in the known world. You can go on YouTube and watch people go through the challenge of trying to stomach just like a little tiny piece while they dry heave. It's kind of amusing. It's not on the menu at Ikea. I'm not sure why. In Iceland, uh, they upstage the Swedes with something that they call hecarol. Uh This is the meat of the Greenland shark, which is poisonous to begin with. Uh, It's a toxic concentration of a certain chemical, but the Icelanders have a brilliant fix for that, see? Because, you know, why wouldn't you try to fix that? Uh, You can ferment the meat traditionally by burying it in the sand for a time. Uh, And this process will push most of the poison out, but it still ends up smelling like urine. (laughs) This is considered a great delicacy in Iceland. And even Gordon Ramsay couldn't keep it down. This might also explain why Scandinavians prefer strong drink. Uh, you would, too, if that was on the menu. But I think of these things, and I'm, you know, you read these, these horror stories, and you watch these videos, and you think, like, this is what Jonah's smelling right now. He'd be sitting in a puddle of stomach acid, which must be great for your skin, um, Whales have much the same acids that humans have in their stomachs, so that's nasty enough. If it's not a whale, and we go with another option and say he's a, you know, a giant shark of some kind or whatever, fish are not much better, because sharks, ha- you know that's the biggest fish, and they have acids in their stomachs that are strong enough to break down metal. It would be pitch black in there, obviously. So Jonah's completely blind, and he only knows anything that's happening by touch, which is not a nice thought, either acid and mush and... Flesh and squishy internal organs and things, right? And then there's the temperature. Because whales are mammals, and their internal body temperatures are like 97 to 100 degrees, so it's also swelteringly hot. Again, unless it's a fish and it's cold-blooded, in which case it's probably unbearably cold, neither of which is very pleasant. And all of this, with no food or water, for three days, 72 hours. Maybe that's just as well, because it would be a nauseating ride, and besides, there's nowhere for Jonah to uh, relieve himself. So you can include that pleasant little fact in your picture now. Now, this scene is not the one that is captured in your arch book, if you have it. Children's Bibles don't adequately portray the full glory of this moment you see this and you think about all that and you think behold the salvation of the lord jonah i sent you a fish you're welcome and i don't know it's hard for me to imagine that jonah saw this as anything more than god prolonging the agony it doesn't look like salvation In fact, it would kill most of us. John Calvin, imagining Jonah's thoughts, puts puts these words in his message. He says, why does he now thus deal with thee? God does not indeed slay thee at once, but intends to expose thee to innumerable deaths. Calvin goes on to say that since Jonah was not slain, but languished in continual torments, it is certain that no one of us can comprehend, much less convey in words what must have come into the mind of Jonah during these three days. He was inside the belly of the fish and must have felt the most grievous agonies, as though he had been doomed to perpetual death. Jonah is in his grave. He's essentially buried alive, and he has absolutely no guarantee that this is going to end well. Now, of course, people will say that the story is impossible precisely because of everything I've just described. Like, how could anyone live three whole days in the belly of a whale, or anything else for that matter? It's impossible! Like, no kidding. That's why we call them miracles. I'm always amazed at how some people think a legitimate argument against miracles is that they are unnatural. Duh. You mean miracles would be miraculous? That's shocking. But as I said, the event is miraculous, but I don't think the means are in the same way because I think God prefers using real stuff, tangible things, ordinary things. He he uses like an ordinary staff in Moses' hand, right, to part the Red Sea. And he doesn't send a prefabricated boat. And he doesn't whisk his people up in a whirlwind and like just plant them on the other shore. They still have to walk. Right? I thought about it even when we were reading the gospel passage here. It's like Jesus is hungry, and it doesn't say, like, that, oh, God made it so that Jesus was miraculously not hungry after 40 days. What does it say at the end? It's like he was hungry. The hunger is real. God uses an ordinary rock in the hands of David to kill Goliath. And in this story, he uses a real sea monster to snatch Jonah from the waves. I don't know how Jonah survived exactly. I don't know. I guess that the, uh, you know, God, God appointed this, this fish to know to go up and get him enough air. I don't know how or if he ate or drank or went to the bathroom. It doesn't really matter. The point is he got swallowed by a large marine animal like a fish and it would have been an absolutely terrifying experience. And the author, who I assume is Jonah himself, chooses not to give us any of those details. He leaves it to your imagination because I think he would rather not relive it even on paper. It's a loaded verse. And not for nothing is it the object of fascination here. There's a reason children like this story. It's fantastical, but it's also earthy and real. It's freaky and kind of gross, and that makes it interesting. It's impossible, and yet somehow we can imagine it. But it would not have seemed like God's mercy at work, I think. I think a lot of us fear the ocean precisely because we're afraid of the things in it that might eat us, Uh, crabs and jellyfish, right? I mean, they make me nervous because they can sting or maybe nibble at me a little bit, but a fish the size of, like, Monstro from Pinocchio, that's something else entirely. And if you've ever seen some of the bones of ancient sea creatures that are now thought to be extinct, you could lose sleep thinking about these things. And I think this one verse suddenly just changed the story from being, like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a, a somewhat conventional Old Testament story anyway and has now turned it into a horror story. It's like Jurassic Park and Jaws and Moby Dick and the Meg all wrapped up together. Why does God do things this way? Why not just have them turn the boat around? Why not have Jonah wake up mysteriously back in Joppa and realize it was just a dream, you know? Like, is God sadistic? Why why allow this? What... What if God, in order to show his wrath on Jonah and make his power known, endured with much patience, the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? That's Paul's words, not mine. Inside joke with Georgia, too. It's almost like God is saying that dying is too good for Jonah. It, 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 would, it would be too easy. But more to the point, God is not finished with Jonah. Jonah. And the story isn't really about Jonah at all, right? God has a plan and has said so from the beginning. The plan is for Nineveh. And therefore, Jonah is not allowed to run. Moreover, nor is he allowed to die. There's no escape for Jonah, even in the grave. But God makes it as uncomfortable as possible. He will learn the hard lesson, and he's going to learn it the hard way. Hundreds of miles of this treatment. He's getting a rough dose of sanctification. There's no spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. But it is God's mercy that he isn't finished with Jonah. We still have three more chapters of the book. And we're starting again to see that there's a pattern here in Jonah of God sending, God appointing, God sends things, And it's meant to be a gift, but it doesn't look like it, right? He sends Jonah to Nineveh to show his mercy. He sends the storm to turn Jonah from his sin. Now he sends this fish. He appointed this fish. It's not a random animal. God handpicked it and told it what to do. Just in case you weren't sure if God had control over nature yet. And not one of these things looks like a gift at face value, because every one of them looks like a curse. The storm, the fish, even Jonah himself, he's a horrible person. Why would you send him to Nineveh, right? And yet they are all signs of God's mercy. God's mercy takes unlikely forms, and sometimes we're convinced that it's designed to kill us. Now, I'm not going to get into everything that Jonah does in the whale's belly. We're going to save his prayer for next week. But I think it's worth reflecting on just this one famous verse, because this is sort of the climactic scene, right? It's what makes the story memorable. It's too ridiculous for Jonah to make it up. And it's so unflattering that he wouldn't even want to. But more than any other verse, this one truly demonstrates that God is in charge. We've seen it already, but this puts the exclamation point on that fact. I keep saying that God is not finished with Jonah. I haven't yet considered whether or not that's good news. It sounds really encouraging. It's a nice thing to say until you see what it looks like. I think Jonah wants God to be done with him. He wants to be done, but Jonah cannot escape his destiny. I remember a week or two back in Sunday school, Ken was saying how people generally do what they want to do, even when they come to faith, because, you know, the Holy Spirit changes us, gives us a new will, and it gives us this desire to follow him. So, yes, people generally do what they want. I'm thinking Jonah feels like another exception to that rule, because no one volunteers for this. It's almost like for every day Jonah spent walking to Joppa, God is repaying him with one night spent in the whale. And what it t- says to me is that God's methods of salvation are not sanitary. And it's painful. And it feels like death. And that's because the sin that got you into the mess can't be undone without mess. You have to touch the mess. And making it right is not a painless process. Facing sin is like a form of death. And now you begin to get a picture of why Jesus is so fond of using Jonah as a picture of his ministry. Uh, This one verse contains a whole world of crazy and taken on its own, it doesn't seem to give us much in the way of a gospel application, but the most obvious way to see the gospel in this verse is this. This is the single verse In the Old Testament, that is the most obvious foreshadow of what Jesus was going to accomplish on that fateful weekend in Jerusalem. Because he, too, would spend three days in a tomb. Jonah's sin landed him in a dark, disgusting place, like a living grave. He tasted death for three days, but Jesus did one better than that. He got the full experience and spent three days in a real grave. And why? Why? Because dealing with sin means getting your hands dirty. It means pain. It means suffering. It means death. But Jesus experienced the grave so that we wouldn't have to fear it anymore. The story of scripture is in part that God is redeeming our suffering, even the suffering that we've earned. Jesus suffers and dies in part to give our suffering some meaning. And now, in Christ, we don't suffer to atone for our sins. We suffer so that we can become more like Jesus. Suffering's not meant to destroy you, it's meant to make you holy. And maybe you can relate to this story on some level, not the sea monster part, right? But maybe, maybe God has dragged you through the mud a bit. And maybe sometimes you've wished that he would just leave you alone and let you go. If you have ever suffered because of your sin, then this verse is for you. Because Jonah really is at rock bottom here, and it all seems so pointless, because you have to remember Jonah couldn't see the sailor's revival that happened, right? That, he wasn't there for that. He's already underwater. He doesn't know that any good came of this. And he has no guarantee he's going to survive, right? The suffering that he is going through right now would seem meaningless. But God is not out to destroy Jonah. But he also doesn't let him die with honor by letting him drown. Jonah might be like Lieutenant Dan wanting to check out, but God doesn't want Jonah to sacrifice himself. He wants him to do his job. God's not really concerned for your honor. Your honor isn't worth defending. And he also isn't about to cancel his plans just because you resist him. He doesn't give you the easy way out or let you wiggle out of the contract. That's not up to you. You are not allowed to quit. You're not allowed to give up. And if you won't come willingly, he might just drag you. And it might be the most horrible, repulsive, uncomfortable experience imaginable. But his goal is not your destruction, but your sanctification. And if you've ever felt like Jonah or like Lieutenant Dan and felt like throwing in the towel, maybe you just want to die with honor, but God doesn't accept resignations very well. He decides when you're done, ultimately, not you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter how badly you've screwed up, the gospel means that God can redeem your pain. He can even redeem your rebellion. He chastens his children because he loves them. That's why Jonah is still alive, and I dare say that's why most of us are still here. It's good news, even when it doesn't look like it. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these fantastic stories, Lord. Things we've heard since we were children, and maybe we just kind of breeze by them. But Lord, what an incredible story, but also what a messy story. It is kind of disgusting. Sin makes these messes. And I know that sin cannot be addressed without getting your hands dirty but Lord, we couldn't do it. We thank you that you sent your son, we thank you that he was willing to get his hands dirty to deal with the mess. And we thank you that even when we want to be done, Lord, that you are in charge, and you tell us. You tell us when we're done. We thank you that ultimately, if you have a purpose for us, you will drag us kicking and screaming to where we're supposed to be, and that you don't take no for an answer. Lord, you are good, and we're thankful for it. Help us to live like it this week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.